in the West, we're becoming, I think, a little bit more self-conscious about evangelism because of mm. some of the stories from the history of evangelism that are negative. But the irony is that the result of those missionary endeavors has meant that people in Africa, South America, and in Asia are less self-conscious about sharing their faith and actually have indigenous churches that are running amazing ministry. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber. We are here at the Third Space Studio, and I'm here again, as usual, with my two friends, Tim and Stu. How are you guys? Hey, Joel. Hey. It's great to have you along. Thank you very much. You're wearing a Superman shirt today. Oh, I'm feeling super today. <laughs> Excellent. And you're a Billabong shirt. So yes, that's Do you is feel true. like a Billabong? I do feel Stu? like a Billabong. <laughs> okay. I feel like a migrating <laughs> water. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a w- migrating water bird. <laughs> Goodness. Maybe a pelican. What a great way to start the episode. <laughs> We've got a bird on the podcast. Um, guys, it's fantastic to have you along with us. Um, we are back into our uh, episode three of uh, Shock Absorber season five, which is Whatever Happened to Evangelism is the title we've given it. And we've talked, it, we've done a little bit of introduction in the last two about how uh, the state of evangelism as it is currently. But um, we're going we're gonna to take a little bit of a trip through time today and have a look at how uh, what evangelism has been like over the course of history um but tim uh, as always we like to start with a cultural artifact and you've got the one the one for us today what is it well it's quite a significant cultural artifact uh and it's called the bible Uh, (laughs) (laughs) now we wanted to start by thinking about um we're, we're talking about the story of evangelism today through um uh, through, through church history, through world, through cultures. And so I thought a better, no better place to start than Acts 1.8 where Jesus gives his disciples this mandate which is to go and continue to communicate the message about himself to the world. Uh, and so Acts 1.8 is kind of the defining verse of the whole of Acts and, and we can see it as the defining verse of really um, all of the world Christian history through that time. And it, it just simply reads... Um, Oh, I'll give a bit of backstory. So Jesus has uh, died. He's risen again. He's about to go back to the Father after 40 days of spending time with his disciples. And as they gather around him, as he's about to um, go back into the heavenly realm with his Father God, uh, they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they've got their ideas about what the kingdom of Israel is and whether that's all coming apart now. And Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So there's a bit of uh, coyness there. Um, but he says, but here's what you will do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then as you continue to read through the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. We start in Jerusalem. We move to Judea, Samaria, right throughout Asia Minor, Um Paul finishes in under house arrest in Rome. He's got a hope that he would love to be able to travel on and church history tells us he'd love to travel on to Spain and there's a debate about whether or not he got there. But we just see this overflowing um, sense of the, the story of the gospel continues to go out. It continues to change people's lives. The disciples uh, and the regular Christians on the ground are going out and telling people um, how amazing God is. Uh, they're starting churches. They're communicating the gospel. They're living as salt and light in their communities. And through that, the kingdom continues to grow. The message continues to expand. And so as we go through today's episode, that's kind of what we want to track is how does that 
Acts 1 verse 8 continue to travel out so that, you know, in 2022, here we are in Kirrawee in southern Sydney in Australia, um, and we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about this gospel that has gone out into the ends of the earth. Mm. Yeah, and that's what we're going to kind of look at right today, Stu, is this, mm. the story of that command that Jesus gave in Acts and how it's kind of played out across history for an extended period of time. Um when you think about that, Stu, because uh, you're a bit of a history buff, I'm not. I'm not as good on ancient history as I think you even might be, and you know a lot about the history of the church. What? Um, how do you think? Let's maybe have it like a slight overview of it first. That how do you? What do you think has been the story of that the command that Jesus gave? I think what's really beautiful about the story is that Jesus is building his church, and he calls on us to partner with him. Mm. And the the big issue with that is that uh, he's calling on us as Christians who are forgiven sinners to participate with him as he grows his church. So obviously we're going to partner with Jesus in spreading the gospel and evangelizing the world. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't get it right. Sometimes people call themselves Christians and actually act in ways that aren't um, very Christian at all. And so the history of evangelism is uh, rightly critiqued by many, particularly uh, today there's a great deal of focus on uh, some of the highlights and the lowlights of mission history at, through the ages. And to be helpful for us today, we thought we'd um, maybe even tap into a couple of authors that look, have looked into this so that if our viewers and our listeners are interested in following this, there's some really interesting books. And Tim, you've got that one there from um, John Dixon where he kind of looks at the history of the Christian church with all its ups and downs, hey? Yeah, so John Dixon last year released this book called Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. Uh, and as he released that, there was a tagline that was being used, you know, the story of the church is both better and worse than you've even imagined. Mm. And so he's going through a lot of the history of the Christian church, uh, which is the story of the gospel continuing to go out there, story of evangelism which is our topic for this season and seeing that yeah there have been some really remarkable things that have happened in that time um, things that are very christ-like uh, ways in which the kingdom has really been the salt and light in the world as uh, we are called to be and there are ways in which as you say christians have got it wrong or people who may have been culturally Christian but actually been driven by other impulses have gone and done really tragic things in the name of Jesus and of the church. And so he deals really openly with this. Um, I have heard a number of him, uh, number of reviews of this. I haven't read, got into the book myself, but as he's spoken about it, I've listened to his interviews and a lot of reviews. Um, it just sounds like a really intriguing read. So, yeah, it's one that I would love to dig into at some point. Um, and, yes, as we, we talk about things today, if people want to dig into that a bit more. Um, Bullies and Saints by John Dixon is excellent. You've got another one, Stu, um, that you've been reading or been talking about? Yeah, so John Dixon's a Christian author. Tom Holland is a secular author that's looked at the impact of Christian mission on the West in particular. And he's written a book called Dominion, Tom Holland Dominion. And the uh, subheading to that is... Um, uh, the effect of Christianity on the Western mind, something to that effect. And in his book, Tom Holland uh, looks at uh, not only how has Western culture been a, a, a long-standing place of Christian evangelism, where there's been a lot of Christian evangelism over many centuries, but also the Christian evangelism and Christian thought has actually... Uh, strongly influenced western thinking right up until this day and he's interesting actually because there are a, a lot of critiques that are being written about um, 
the Christian West at the moment, but he he takes a more positive line and talks about the positive aspects of Christianity and its impact on on the West. So, for example, one of the interesting insights he has is that, funnily enough, he looks at um, how many uh, early pagans in the Roman Empire would have seen Christianity as as a quite a a liberating thing in terms uh, of. Uh, relationship for example so uh, in a culture that wasn't familiar with monogamy there was a sense that having one god to to follow rather than multiple gods and having one relationship with another person in a marriage uh, was actually seen by early romans as a freedom uh, free from having to uh, just just have lots of casual relationships there was a freedom to have a relationship with one person and just have what they would have considered to be uh, something that in our day and age is conceived to be tradition and sometimes uh, portrayed as an an inhibiting um, human freedom. Well, he would argue that Christianity in the early days was actually seen as a a freedom-giving thing. So the other thing he also talks about is that um, romance is actually a Christian idea because back in a time where people were given and taken into marriage for political reasons uh there was a there was a an emphasis that every individual was precious and individual people could make a choice about who they uh were in a relationship with so that that was another level of freedom that romance could become a reason to marry and so yeah he looks at just uh, some really interesting aspects of christianity so that's another book that's worth uh looking into yeah well, that's fascinating i mean um with things like bullies and saints and talking about how uh, some things have been great across history and some things haven't. What, um, In terms of that, do you think that it's often missed that there's also the sinfulness of people that are like a mm. contributing to that? How do, how do, I mean, sometimes when you're talking about that, people would like to bring up things in history and you know, we're talking about evangelism. How would you, if someone brings up something like that, how would you kind of talk to them about that? Well, I think that John Dixon approach is really honest and open. It's like, we, yeah, we we're human beings and we're yeah. sinful and we do things wrong and and not only that but sometimes people claim to be christians when they're not so uh in 312 i think constantine is understood to have become a christian or made some kind of commitment to the christian faith scholars broadly uh, agree i think that 312 around that time is when that took place he was the emperor of rome and there was a stark change in evangelism after that took place because as many of our listeners and viewers would know that the early decades of Christian evangelism were marked by terrible persecution. So the persecution of the church, particularly by the Roman Empire, led to Paul, who um, was one of the greatest Christian evangelists, to actually be arrested and killed for the fact that he was he was uh, spreading Christianity. And so he would go from town to town to preach the gospel and and churches would be planted as he did that, and he ended up in Rome. And um, tradition has it that he was beheaded on the Appian Way just outside of Rome, and and for many that was probably considered to be the end of the Christian uh, message probably. But it continued to grow through people sharing their faith uh, with other people. And sometimes it wasn't even the apostles that started churches. Sometimes churches started and apostles sent teachers to those places because the message of the gospel went through the trade routes. Uh, interesting archaeological finds recently have discovered that there are really ancient um, Christian markings on rocks in Britain that predate the uh, later official um, evangelistic endeavours of the missionaries that came from Rome. So 
presumably down in Cornwall, down the coast, where there was a lot of trade taking place between England and the Mediterranean. They found shards of Middle Eastern pottery down there in, in the south coast of England. So obviously the trade routes had got all the way up there. And presumably some of those uh, traders were Christians and they shared their faith with people in England and they became Christians before the missionaries even got there. So mm. it's an incredibly powerful message that was spreading out across the whole of the Roman world. And even while the Romans were persecuting it, um, the fact that the Romans had roads and they had um, stabilised the written Greek language and then later Latin, that there was, um, you know, obviously a lot of force with the, the soldiers, but it was creating a certain kind Infra of ability, infrastructure to be mm. able to travel so people could travel safely. So the gospel was just going out naturally. Mm. But yeah, I mean, Nero, he was... Um, you know, the, the, the famous story of the city of Rome burning and then Nero blaming the Christians and a terrible persecution broke out against the Christians where they were rounding Christians up and killing them in the Colosseum and elsewhere. I mean, the Romans were even gathering up Christian children and putting um, lamb's wool on them and saying to the kids that they were going to pretend to be sheep and then they'd send them out in the Colosseum and let wolves onto them. So dreadful stories like that. But despite that persecution, it continued to grow. And then you have this event in 312 where Constantine presumably becomes a Christian and then he offers protection to the Christian church. Now, I find that interesting because overnight he says to all the pagan temples, okay, now the the religion of the empire is not going to be this pagan Romanism anymore. It's now going to be Christian. And all of a sudden, lots of these temples were converted into churches. Now, I could imagine there was a great deal number of priests who all of a sudden became christian ministers who actually probably didn't even share the christian faith so so then to 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 think about that not only do christians have to deal with the fact that we're sinful and that we can be a product of our generation but also there were people who were now becoming christian ministers because it was a way to get into power and there's always been and always will be people who will say yeah i claim to take on this thought system if it can actually help my career so there was a lot of careerism going on and that's what we call the beginning of the era of Christendom. But during the era of Christendom, it wasn't, excuse me, it wasn't all bad. There's lots of terrific stories about people of faith taking the gospel and actually having beautiful stories of um, sharing the gospel with other people. For example, Bede, the English uh, historian, writes about the first uh, Anglo-Saxon kings who converted to Christianity and the story goes that a missionary was sitting with the Anglo-Saxon king in a cold hall in the middle of a winter night and there was a, a storm outside and there was this warm glow of the fire inside and apparently a swallow flew from outside into the building and then out the other window and according to the tradition the missionary turned to the king and said that's what your life is your life is just such a short moment you you will only be in this in this life for as long as this sparrow has taken to fly through from one window to another. And that touched the king's heart and he decided that he'd actually give his life to the Lord. And in those days he then became a promoter of Christianity as well. So the stories like these individual conversions that then actually lead to great deal of social change. So, But that social change is not un universally always good. And so there's rightly, in John Dixon's book, there's rightly... Um, a good thing to be honest about that mm. and to speak about that too, yeah. It's only since uh, embracing our sinfulness but um, being aware of it. that, And I think, do you think that's an important, if we're talking about evangelism now, is that an important thing, Tim, that we need to be thinking about when we do talk to people about Jesus? Being aware of our own sinfulness? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think we need to be humble enough to realise that we can get it wrong. Um, and it's, it's this messy reality that we have as Christians that, 
we will we will continue to be sinful. We have that the the old man, as Paul calls it, is still uh, in us um, right until you know new creation. Um, and yet there is also the expectation. Jesus says they will know you. Um, by your love for each other. And so there is also the expectation that the way we act as Christians and the way we act particularly towards each other as Christians is itself the gospel. Um, there was a common phrase when I was growing up that, uh, you know, don't look at me, just look at Christ. Like this kind of like, um, this good intention to say, oh, yeah, yeah, don't look at me if you want to know what Jesus is like um, because I'm sinful and you just need to look at Jesus. And there is a truth to that, but there's also the flip side, which is actually, you know, the Bible tells me that, my life is that witness of Jesus. So you need to hold those both to intention that I am going to get it wrong um, and yet I'm also expected to get it right. <laughs> and so as we hold those two things in tension and we realise that what is true of me for that and is also true of others in that um, is to be able to hold those things loosely. And I think one of the important things is that we have the objectiveness of God's truth in his word that we can continue to use as our assessment of ourselves mm. and of each other. So as we look through um, you know, history and, and different cultures and the way that people have expressed um, their Christianity, um, whether it be in times of persecution or in times of you know, peak Christendom, we can continue to come back and bring their stories to the Bible and say, okay, well, let's, let's lose, use the Bible as a lens through which to assess um, were they in line with the ethics of the kingdom or not? Mm. Um, and we continue to use ourselves um, and our brothers and sisters um, in our churches, our city and across the world with the same lens. Okay, how, to what extent are we using the ethics of the kingdom to actually promote the gospel uh, and then just be humble enough to realise that I'll get it wrong, others will get it wrong, but we want to continue to sharpen each other and do what we can. The really humbling thing in all of this is that God doesn't have to use us, but he chooses to. Mm. Um, one of my favourite verses is 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 3, no, 1 Corinthians 1, where um, the Paul calls us his co-workers, uh, so Jesus' co-workers, like we are God's co-workers. Uh, and I just think that's remarkable because God doesn't have to use us. He's very capable of growing his church without us. And yet he chooses to use us in our fallibility, uh, in our brokenness, in our redeemed sinfulness to continue to do his work. And it's a really beautiful thing to be called up into that. Um, but it, it does, it helps us to be humble in the way that we assess ourselves and world history. Mm. And I suppose that's what you're saying, Stuart, partnering with Jesus as he builds his church. We're not doing it on our own, mm. but God doesn't need us, but we're going to partner with him by yeah. obviously seeking God's word. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think in every generation God raises up evangelists and in every generation there are some who preach the gospel and there are also in each generation people who are using the gospel for their own means and, and also heretics who are changing the gospel in every generation. That's why so much of the New Testament has been written to say be careful of the wolves who come amongst the sheep. But in a in a time of Christendom that started with Constantine, all of a sudden what you have is church and state get combined and throughout a very long period of time, particularly in European history, the church and the state were actually uh, indistinguishable. So you've got uh, the Pope in Rome who's able to uh, call the King of England, King John. Uh, at, at one stage, um, King John um, actually displeased the Pope, and so the Pope said to King John, well, you're going to go to hell, so you're now excommunicated from the church. And King John, the King of England, was so disturbed by that that he actually repented to the Pope and said, I will give you England if you let me 
go to heaven. And so the Pope then said, yes, okay, now I take away that excommunication and I'll have England, please. So not many people know, but the Pope of Rome actually ruled England uh, at the time of John because John actually um, let that happen because he was so scared of his eternal salvation. You also get someone that happened earlier in 1066, William the Conqueror from France invaded England and he conquered England in 1066. And the first battle was the Battle of Hastings where the Anglo-Saxon army... Uh, and the Norman army clashed at Hastings at a place that we now call Battle. And it's just a big field. Uh, historians argue whether it was actually there or not. But it might have been up the road or down the road, but it was around there somewhere. <laughs> but basically on the on the hill uh, at the field of battle, there's this big monastery that was built on top of the hill. And the reason the monastery was built was King William wanted to conquer England so that he could be the king of England. But in the process, he killed Harold, who was the existing king of England. And because of that sin, he felt like his soul was in jeopardy. So he spent an exorbitant amount of money to build an abbey and then to pay nuns to pray for his soul for the next two or three hundred years to make sure that he didn't have to suffer in the next life because of his sinfulness in this life. So here you get these huge political events that are taking Mm -hmm. place that are inexorable. In, in, in what's the word inextricably inextricably whatever the word is when the, the two things are linked <laughs> and um yeah so i mean that's that's just a crazy confluence that that we can't get ahead around in this age we live in which is post christendom but you know sometimes it's easy for people to look at something like that and go well how real is christianity because this guy thinks he can kill a king and then just get away with it by getting some nuns to pray for him but i, I don't think that would have pleased god in 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 the slightest and when we read the bible we can see that that some of the activities of people who are calling themselves christians when tim was saying line it up with the bible then it doesn't actually match up Mm. so but you know throughout um all these events there's always been christians who are seeking to preach the gospel so for example another really famous era that we often talk about is the crusades where the european crusaders went and pursued war on the uh the 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 muslims who were down in um jerusalem to try and take jerusalem and so they they there were popes and christian leaders and kings and princes from all over europe who joined that cause and were teaching people that it was a holy war and that if people joined that holy war and helped to liberate jerusalem for the church then they would they would gain uh entrance into heaven for that work so you you know there's some terrible atrocities that took place during those crusades there was three four crusades maybe even more one of the crusades was the children's crusade where a whole heap of children went down to invade jerusalem by themselves and and hundreds of hundreds and hundreds maybe thousands of children died on the way down there there was another crusade that got to constantinople and decided they were they couldn't be bothered going all the way down to jerusalem so they attacked constantinople so you know but now we can laugh at that today but but that, the shadow of those events actually stretch all the mm. way through to our generation and mm. people still raise that in Christian conversation. If you evangelize today and you're sharing the gospel with someone, they go, oh, yeah, here you go again, you crusaders who went down and did all those atrocities down in Jerusalem. But not many people know that at the same time as some of those crusades were taking place, there were missionaries who were leaving Europe, going down into Africa and living with uh, African communities and participating in their communities and at the same time sharing the truth and love of Jesus in those communities. These were people who refused to take place in those crusades. So you can read contemporary um, accounts from people at that time who were saying, oh, no, that's not the way to, to build the kingdom of God. That's 
not right. So, yeah, so I think I think we've got to just look at beyond the veneer of some of these stories and look a little bit deeper. Um, often, you know, rightly, uh, many people say, well, why did so many Christians participate in slave trading? And rightly so, that was a terrible stain on Western history that uh, Westerners went to Africa and took uh, African people and made them slaves on cotton plantations and within sugar plantations and things like that. Um, but at the same time as some Westerners who were calling themselves Christians were engaging in slavery, there were other Christians uh, from uh, Eastern Europe who were selling themselves into slavery so that they could minister to and share the gospel with slaves, which is not very common and much uh, told. But yeah, so Christian history is, as John Dixon says, there's there's examples of terrible, sad, sad things and there's also examples of beautiful piety as well. Yeah. I think the word you're looking for before is inextricably. Thank so you. That's very helpful. No, no worries at all. <laughs> um, uh, the question that I was going to ask, though, is looking at, uh, back at again at, at another period of history that was really important, and something something that I don't think I know very much about is the Reformation, a mm. very important time in the Christian Church. Um, uh, can you guys educate me on it? Because I'd really like to know the, the basics around it. And obviously, Martin Luther was a big part of it. But what, what else do we know about the Reformation? Yeah, yeah. here's my uh, armchair understanding yeah. of the Reformation. Um, so essentially, what had been... So much earlier, there'd been an earlier split in the church, and that's where we get the Orthodox Church from, from the rest of the Western European Church. And so um, you've got a whole history about the Orthodox Church, which I know next little about, so I won't go into that and show my ignorance. But the, the Western um, European church um, that came out of um, Constantine, the, the Christendom that we've talked about, um, was the Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal, so they just saw themselves as, as the church. And what you have is over a number of generations, um, sort of starting uh, earlier than Luther, but really hitting a peak with Luther's generation, uh, is you have a number of people who are reading the scriptures um, and becoming dissatisfied that actually the established church uh, is not living in line with the scriptures. And so they're, they're noticing ways in which the even the established church, because of the, the powers that they had and the ways in which they were enacting those powers, um, the types of ways that they were using money and influence um, to shape culture were not in line with the kingdom of God um, and so not in line with the, the kingdom ethics. And so you've got a number of these generations working through who are saying, actually, we need to reform the church. We need to bring it back to um, the, the scriptures. So we need to bring it back to the biblical vision of what the church should be and who we should be in this generation, the message we should be sharing. And so you have a number of these reformers who are seeking to do that reformation work. Um, however, uh, long story short, you've got the established church, which largely rejects those reformations. And so then uses things like excommunication um, and other powers that they had because they were, you know, the, the world power that they had... Um, political power as well as um, church, ecclesial power, were able to um, excommunicate and to kick out and say these people are not real Christians. And, and so even execute and kill people. And, and so even execute and kill, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you've got these uh, reformers who are trying to shape the church back into what it should be, but actually because they get removed end up um, splitting the church, which is not their intention but ends up being what they had to do. Um, they, they felt compelled that, no, regardless of whether I'm being kicked out or not, this is where I must um, stand. The famous uh, Martin Luther stories, he's given his 
doctrines back to him at a trial and said, you know, all we need you to do is to recant these and we just need to say that you were wrong, uh, the church is correct and then we'll be all happy with you um, and you can go free. And he says uh, famously, I, here I stand, I can do no other. Um, basically, no, I'm, I'm, even if I'm excommunicated, even if I'm killed, whatever you do to me is not the point. I have to stand on the truths of Scripture as far as I see them. Um, and so, I mean, he doesn't get executed, he gets rescued and um, taken out live in a castle and, and writes a whole lot more. Um, but him and then subsequent generations, you've got um, Zwingli, you've got Calvin, uh, you've got Cramner in the UK, you've got a number of these people in that generation over a number of centuries who start to do this Reformation work and that's where we end up with the Protestant church as opposed to the Catholic church. Um, and so that's, that's part of what they're doing. And so what is happening there, because they're able to challenge the church in its political um, and its ecclesiological power, um, in some ways that starts the cracking of Christendom as well because they're starting to drive a wedge between what can we see as being authentically biblically Christian and this, these political structures and the power structures that the church has created for itself and, and place itself in. And so um, there, there's a long history there and, and Tom Holland, again, is, is excellent in this space. But you, you start to get this fracturing of powers. You start to get the fracturing of the church. Um, you get not just uh, the Protestant and the Catholic church as well as, as I said, the Orthodox, but even Protestantism then starts to split apart as well. We get Anabaptists who thought that some of the reformers didn't go far enough and so they go really radical. Um, in England, you get the Church of England established, but then um, up in particularly Scotland and Northern England, you get... Um, the Presbyterians, who again don't think the Anglicans go far enough, so they want to go even further with their reforms. Uh, and then you get through to today where we've got, you know, dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of different denominations um, that have all come out of that. Um, and all in at their best in good faith trying to work out what does it mean to live authentically Christian? What is it, what's the biblical vision of how we gather together as a church? What's the biblical vision of how we love each other, organise ourselves? Um, and there's there's disagreements, obviously. Mm. Um, and so that's where we end up with the, the different types of denominations we end up with today. And that impacts our evangelistic conversations to this day too because a part of that was a lot of messy stuff like there was a lot of wars and like for a hundred years there were there was different countries who accepted protestantism and others who remained with catholicism who went to war with each other uh the spanish and the english the the dutch uh within france there was uh the huguenots who rose up against the government but they were crushed um so yeah there's this um this collective memory that we have in the west that that was a really terrible uh time and people were fighting over uh, whether they should be Protestant or Catholic because uh, church and state had been combined. And so what we get still to this day is sometimes people will say, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with your religion because that causes wars mm. and people kill each other over that. So that's a very much an oversimplification of what's taking place. And there was this um, political reality that was um, being fought out across Europe but even that wasn't just over religion it was about other countries trying to take over other countries as had always been the case but we can sometimes oversimplify that whole story like we oversimplify the story of the Crusades or the story of the Roman Empire we just make it into these little bite-sized little tweetable 
sentences and think that we've got a great argument when we can come back at someone on Facebook with, oh, yeah, but all Christians do is cause wars. When, you know, there's only a small percentage of all the world wars that have ever been fought that are caused by religion and fought over religion, something well, it's under 5%, I think, or around 5%. But um, what we see is that with the Reformation, there are people who are really striving to work out what is our message and what is the underpinnings of our message. And then if you, you look forward, um, the Protestant Reformation really uh, released this idea of the individual, that an individual's relationship with God is actually really important. I'm not just a Christian because I'm a member of the Catholic Church and I was baptised as an infant. I'm a Christian because I've made a personal commitment to Christ. And again, Tom Holland talks about Luther, who was a monk who lived in dread of judgment, starving himself, praying every night, confessing his sins for long hours at a time, um, because he thought that that's how he had to um, live his life as a Christian, and he wasn't deserving of heaven. But when he read the Bible and he reflected on Romans and the Psalms, and he realised actually it's about... Jesus has done everything to save me, not about my works, then he is transformed by that. And he actually rediscovers the writings of Augustine, who had written many, many uh, centuries before him, who was also pointing people to this idea that Christ has, uh, that the gospel message is that Christ has done the work for us. So when it comes to, you know, the time of European expansion, the, the other fraught issue is that three things happen. First of all, there's the Enlightenment that in some ways is, is advanced by Protestant Reformation because if the Protestants were saying the individual is important, then the Enlightenment philosophers were trying to work out, well, what does it mean to be an individual? And the other thing the Enlightenment was doing is, is there a way of organising our society without killing each other? So could we take religion out of the question so that we can separate church and state and then just actually think scientifically about the world? So Descartes is one of the first Enlightenment philosophers. He's a French philosopher, and he comes up with the famous statement, I think, therefore I am. Whereas in his world, it would have been, I think, because we are. So I would be defined by who the group I'm in. But no, he's saying, no, actually, I think that. And that, that unleashes a whole heap of thought that then actually comes full circle by the time you get to the 1800s as Christian theologians are starting to take on these Enlightenment ideas. And then that leads to even more scientific uh, endeavors and over time that scientific endeavor is actually starting to question the christian faith and then you get philosophers like hume who are saying things that he's calling you know he's coming from scotland which we would think is a christian country with this idea of christendom but hume the, the scottish philosopher was saying well actually human beings are not all the same that he came out with the thought that you know, um, people who are hunter-gatherers are not as advanced as people who farm, and people who live in cities are more advanced than both those other two categories. So the highest level of civilization is is a city. So you know, the, by the time that European expansion happens, you've got this Enlightenment thought flavoring that idea that Enlightenment philosophers are saying, well, people who are hunter-gatherers aren't quite as advanced, and it's almost our prerogative that we have to go and make them more civilized. So while that's happening, there's also this conflict between protestants and catholics as they send out missionaries all over the world the catholics are going out with the jesuits for example into china and the way they'll uh, go into china and south america and other places like that uh, is very different to the way the protestants will go out and um, you know again i don't want to create uh, oversimplifications but for a, a jesuit to come into a village and baptize a village then that village is now christian whereas the protestants might go into a place and then look for personal um 
conviction and ask people to make a decision for Christ personally. So you've got this these three factors taking place at the same time as empire is expanding. So at a time of colonial colonisation, um, missionaries are going out as the armies of Europe are going out conquering the world. And the armies of Europe are kind of competing with each other on the continent. You know, you've got Napoleon fighting the, the, the Spanish, the English, the the Saxons, the, all the other German um, nations and, and the Russians, and they're fighting in Europe, but they're also fighting around the world. So there's this rush to colonise the world to try and take the resources off Indigenous communities around the globe. And so the British Empire ended up being the biggest empire, but there was a Dutch Empire, there was a, there was a Spanish Empire. So all these empires are kind of fighting each other for supremacy. And as that's all going on, to make things more confusing, you've got people who are going into these communities to civilise people and, and take, take you know people like Aboriginal Australians and force them to wear clothes because that's a civilising act. And you've also got Christian missionaries from the Catholic Church and from the Protestant denominations going out around the world. So it's a very complex evangelistic story, but overall the message of the gospel does go out in amongst all that messiness. There's stories of tragedy and stories of beautiful... Um, uh, beautiful relationships being formed too. I mean, the first Sunday school in Sydney, um, the was the 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 the, the children of uh, the first minister in Parramatta started a Sunday school, and in that first Sunday school, there were Aboriginal uh, First Nations children and British children in the same Sunday school. And in fact, the Parramatta uh, story was that his daughter actually married an Aboriginal man. So there was this lovely story of reconciliation and unity in that context but then in other cases there's massacres that are taking place too and so as we look at that all of that has also now become mm. part of the burden of our uh, evangelism now because people will look back to the time of colonization and, and almost feel like christianity is a white religion because the europeans spread so much of the gospel but tim you were saying earlier that if you looked at the average Christian around the world. What what did you say the demographics described as now? Uh, yeah, so they, they've said that the average Christian today is a middle-aged African woman um, because of where the actual shifting of um, professed Christianity is. And so we know that over the last uh, number, couple of hundred years, um, there's been a great global shift in Christianity. And so we now have the global south, which is significantly more Christian than um, the West. Um, and so there's this, uh, again, the stereotype of Christianity is that it's a Western religion, mm. which is because of the Christendom that is, was established throughout Europe, um, which of course is incorrect because it started as a Jewish sect in Israel. So it's Middle Eastern at its very core. Um, and yes, that theologically we have uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, like we're grafted onto the Jewish tree um, and it's a great joy as gentiles to be actually grafted into the story um, and that's again what acts is is telling us that story about um, so i mean it's it's false to start with to say that it's a western religion even though that has in for many years been a significant part of the story but the most significant part of the story now is that largely those western nations have completely secularized lost their religion um, and so we see that right throughout europe we see it increasingly in um, the US, the UK and Australia, which are sort of three of the areas where there's still significant Christian presence, but nowhere near as much as has been historically the case. 
Um, but the global south, we've got right throughout Asia. Um, south Korea is huge in its number of percentage-wise in terms of Christians. Um, south Korea is now sending out more missionaries around the world than America is. Yeah. I've heard, or coming close anyway. Some, yeah, that, that wouldn't surprise me. It's a, a wonderful statistic that that's happening. Um, you've got... Yeah, number of Southeast Asian countries uh, in in China, where it's impossible to know because of the political pressures there under a communist state. But it's uh, thought um, that there is really significant numbers of Christians in China as a percentage of their population, and certainly by number because there's so many people in China. It may be the most populous Christian nation in the world, but again, those statistics are really hard to come by because of the persecution there. Yeah, a couple of years ago, the, the secular publication, The Economist, that's an American magazine, um, made an estimate that they were saying that there's as many 80, that there could be as many as 80 million Christians in China. And mm. according to the time of writing, there was only 70 million in the Communist Party. So that was an incredible statistic. Yeah, so that's huge. Um, and then in, in the African nations as well, uh, there's significant numbers and, and the church in um, Kenya, Uganda um, and a number of those sort of more southeastern or, or mid-eastern um, African nations, uh, the Christian church is huge and there's been Christian missionary movements right throughout um, Africa as well. And so the sheer size of the volume there and those who profess um, Christ um, has yeah really shifted the global dynamics of what the average Christian would be. And the irony is, uh, in the West, we're becoming, I think, a little bit more self-conscious about evangelism because of mm. some of the stories from the history of evangelism that are negative. But the irony is that the result of those missionary endeavours has meant that people in Africa, South America and in Asia are less self-conscious about sharing their faith and actually have Indigenous churches that are running amazing ministry. I mean, I had the privilege uh, a few years ago to visit the ECPNG up in Papua New Guinea, which is the Evangelical Church of Papua New Guinea with Pastor Hengerbear and Pastor Benessi, who, who lead that church. There are 70,000 members of the ECPNG right across the island of Papua New Guinea, and that's an Indigenous movement that is now sending missionaries around the world from Papua New Guinea. So we've got this really interesting dynamic that... Um, Places like Africa, where uh, first received missionaries from Europe, and now sending missionaries to Europe from Africa, and so I, I think that's a really fascinating change in evangelism. But but those things are interesting for us as Western Christians to have in the back of our minds because um, yeah, there's a there's a, a great deal of uh, criticism of colonialism, and often mission activity uh, is often associated with. Um, that colonialism. Now, sometimes the missionaries did work with the colonialists, but often they uh, worked separately or they were going out at the same time or they were working against uh, some of the excesses of colonialism as well. And so, it, like I said before, it is worth looking at some of these texts to see just how complicated some of these stories are so that if we're able to come and have a conversation with someone who may not have spent much time in these kind of ideas that they can see that interaction. I mean, what also makes it more difficult too is on top of that, we were saying that third piece, the Enlightenment, that um, the Enlightenment was shaping Christianity as well. So uh, there were Christians who were considering it the, their role to civilise uh, the people they shared the gospel with as well because they were influenced by Hume as much as they were influenced by Jesus in Acts one eight saying, go out and um, tell the world about me. But then the way they did it 
was in keeping with the fact that they were people of their time. So I think um, what's important for us to do as Christians is to put the gospel first and seek to uh, look at how we evangelize in our time and and have open conversations as we will be in this podcast about how do we share the the gospel of Christ in our generation. And yeah, I think that's really important. Well, I think that's been a really uh, great flyover of uh, some of the history of evangelism, which I've, I would consider myself more educated than when I started this podcast. So thank you very much, <laughs> both of you, for, for, for educating me. Um, something that I also think we might want to pick up, uh, we're pushed for time in this episode, but something I'd like to pick up perhaps next week is um, the history of revivals and how mm. that's uh, kind of influenced evangelism over the um, uh, different uh, periods of history. But uh, let's wrap it up for this episode. Um, just wanted to say to everyone listening, hope you're educated just as much as I was. Um, thank you very much for listening and watching. Uh, if you are interested in learning more, you can always get in contact with us. You can subscribe on YouTube or on your favourite podcast app. You can also email me at joel at shockabsorber.com.au and you can send in any questions. you have any uh, revivals you might like to see us covered, definitely send them through. Um, uh, you can jump on the Discord where we can have conversations around it. They'll be in the show notes. Uh, but... Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tim and Stu. It's been a really good, again, educational podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. And we'll finish with a one-way. One-way. One way.